The Lead with Courage podcast is recorded on the lands of the Yagara and Turrbal peoples. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to lands, waters and community. We pay our deepest respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to Elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to Lead with Courage, the podcast that celebrates the bold and inspiring stories of leaders making a difference. We're your hosts, Andy and Shuri Cannon, and together we'll dive into the minds of the trailblazers, the risk takers, and those who embrace life with a growth mindset. Well, welcome to the Lead with Courage podcast. I bet you didn't expect to hear a male voice on the podcast um, with first cab off the rank, if you will. But I'm here today. Well, firstly, my name is Andy. Um, I'm the other half of Luminate Leadership and the other half of um, this beautiful woman sitting across from me, uh, Cherie Canning. Welcome to the Lead with Courage podcast. Thank you for welcoming me. It's great you. to be here. Yeah, it is Woo-hoo. great to be here. Yes, um, definitely not second time lucky or anything like that. So the first question I'd love to ask you today and, and what I think the audience and the listeners would really love to hear is what does lead with courage mean to you? Yeah, great. I thought you were going to ask me what do I love most about you or something like that, but I'll, I'll go with lead with courage. That sounds... Oh, uh, that might be on episode 10 or something. <laughs> For those who have no idea who we are, it's probably important you know that Andy and I are actually married, so that's a that's a good start. Um, yeah, lead with courage. What does it mean to me in the context of this podcast and illuminate leadership? For me, lead with courage is about people being their best authentic selves. I think that is not always easy for people to show up as their full self, to speak up, to show up, to step up, uh, and it's really about. I love that phrase about choosing courage over comfort because often whether it is about speaking up or a way of acting or taking a risk in our lives, trying something new, failing forward, whatever it may be, sometimes it's just so much easier to be a passenger in your own life. So I love the idea of just giving stuff a go even when there's a bit of fear attached or the unknown just to find courage instead of that comfort zone. I think that's a perfect way to describe what lead with courage is so thank you thank you thank you what i'd really love to hear today is um about your leadership journey and i guess um leadership starting from early in the piece you know as a teenager uh if i remember correctly you may or may not have been a very proud school captain (laughs) unlike myself who barely made it out alive out of school (laughs) but i think i've still got my school captain badge somewhere or mum and dad might have that actually yes i was a very proud little school captain you want to give a shout out to your high school? Oh yeah, the Forest High School, Northern Beaches. Woo! Yeah, God's country. Just ask them. Yes, yes, Northern Beaches of Sydney, just beautiful place to live. Yeah, lovely. Uh, so, school captain, and then from there, what do you feel like your significant memory of leadership, and and I guess maybe one of your first exposure to leadership was back then. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about this for a long time, but it's probably not overly relevant for everyone to listen to because um, it's more really sentimental, meaningful for me, the experiences I had as a teenager. I was in um, the SRC, so did like district, state and a national SRC representing Australia, going to the states, all those kind of things. So really, I think on reflection, early in the piece, found a tribe of other humans that just really inspired me Um, so being a part of that I just realized that as teenagers we had the ability to impact for a better world and there were just so many inspiring people and I think actually like even deeper reflection on that now as a mum and a mum to a, a young girl who you know one day be a teenager in school and 
whether she'll go down your path and hopefully she'll, you know, not just like fall over the finish line at school or whether she loved school like I did. I think she's an early front runner for loving school. <laughs> Let's hope so. Yeah. I mean, no judgment to those she's who didn't early, She's an odds-on favourite for that. <laughs> yes, fortunately it's looking that way. Uh, but I suppose just, you know, as teenagers go through all the pressures and um, – peer pressure of different decisions around drugs alcohol sex all those kind of stuff like for me that leadership pathway kind of gave me a really positive um view of life and really inspiring space so yeah i'm very grateful for that experience um another part of my youth when you were when i reflect back more like less book learning but more experiential is my dad, you know, my dad, my dad, obviously, you know, my dad, uh, but my dad is like a mad soccer fan um, and has been a player. He was playing competitive, you know, Premier League um, level, not English Premier League, I'm afraid, but, uh, you know. Na- yeah, I was going to say, you might want to clarify that a little <laughs> bit, what Premier oh, yeah. League is. My dad, Roy Kent, um, no, no, uh, no, no amateur Premier League, uh, at the age of 40 still, he was coach captain um, in those, you know, up to 40, which sounds really old when I was young, but now I'm, I'm around that point, so it's not that old. Maybe over that point. Yeah, thanks, <laughs> 40-ish. Uh, yeah, and there were two key things that I really took away from watching my dad coach um, and playing, and so as I was a teenager, he was then coaching a lot of rep soccer, a lot of ego in young teenage boys. Um, and a lot of ego in other coaches on the side of the uh, on the side of the field, kind of like I think that's what I think, like to think my dad's a bit like a Ted Lasso on the side of a field, you know, just always positive. And there was two phrases he'd say all the time that I think have really stuck with me through life. And one was play the whistle. So you know, in soccer, for example, um, someone dives or you know someone thinks they should be getting a penalty, and everyone's ah ref, and they're just carrying on. And you'd hear my dad yell out in his little Geordie accent. Play the whistle, son. Play the whistle. And I think this this whole thing about just deal with what's in front of you in life. Don't be calling for what should be, what could be. Um, I've been wronged. This isn't right. It's just about play what's in front of you. And that was a huge life lesson for me. And as it will turn out over the years to come in my future from learning about that, there's a lot of those times where you just have to play the whistle and go, right, that's a bit of a curveball or not what I'd hoped or expected but just got to deal with what's in front of you and then the other thing he'd say because I'd, I'd be <laughs> such a dag um, and maybe it's because I was just trying to like get the attention of these young men but I'd, I'm not sure but I'd hang out at the side of the coach's box with my dad I'd be on the um, like you know the guest side the the people watching it side but I'd be like right there as long as I could and I'd be like oh dad what about this and what about that and I'm like his co-coach which I'm sure he really appreciated uh, how annoying. But at the end of a game, if they'd lose or someone, you know, didn't score or something, and I'd get quite emotional, really bought into it, which I'm sure you'd find hard to believe. Um, I'd be oh, no, rah, rah, Dad would go, it's just a game. It's just a game. And just about perspective in life, you know, that yes, he cared about winning and he was competitive, but just remembering like in the scheme of life, just a game and if they won if they lost it really it doesn't matter years to come you know so that balance between trying hard and being ambitious but also perspective so you're saying i've got dickie wilson to thank for two things it's the playing the whistle and it's just a game it's just a game yeah thanks dad yeah thanks dickie wilson um 
Beautiful. Thank you. Um, how about if we kind of move forward a little bit? We've, mm. we've graduated um, graduated school, may or may not have been school captain. That, that was still <laughs> yeah. contentious. Um, then you found yourself uh, in Switzerland in a s- remote ski village. Yes. Um, living overseas. I did. It was beautiful. Fill in the blanks for me. Yeah, yes. I decided not to follow suit with everyone else at the end of school. And whilst I got some good results, I think I got a 91 or something out of 100. Maybe it's a – I don't know what that equivalent is here in Queensland. Uh, But I did – 91% here in Queensland. (laughs) (laughs) I mean (laughs) – Oh, wow, that – that really came out clever. Um, no, thanks. In the OP or whatever it is here in the um, the scoring. But anyhow, uh, it was a lifetime ago. So I did well and I could have gone to uni and I'd planned to go to uni, but I decided I just wasn't, I wasn't that keen. I just wanted to travel. Um, so thanks to Dad and his English passport, I took a one-way ticket over to the UK and then um, found myself in a ski resort for a, what was supposed to be a whole winter's season and... Um, and it was a hilarious job. I was I was like a chambermaid. I cleaned. Now I'm looking at my husband saying this out loud. <laughs> He's looking at me going, "You clean what?" Because I cleaned rooms. I made beds. I just you had me a chambermaid. <laughs> like explain to me what a chambermaid is. <laughs> yeah, I, I clean for a living, and um, let it be known, I don't do a lot of that anymore. <laughs> oh, that's terrible, isn't it? So um, I very quickly learned what I didn't enjoy doing. And um, but probably the reason you've asked me to share about that it's not about the job I did. Well, it was the fact that I actually broke my back, so I fell off a toboggan. That sounds a bit uncoordinated, but I did go tobogganing down a pretty decent slope, and um, I went up off the toboggan. If you can imagine someone sitting on a little wooden sled, went up, came back down, and the um, the pressure or the intensity of coming back down, I actually crushed my L one. So it was a little bit painful. Um, what's funny is that I have been referred to as a bit of a hypochondriac over the years. So I was like, wow, that, that is really painful. But am I just having myself on? Cause I love, you know, to tell everyone if I'm unwell and get a little bit of attention. So I thought, no, no, I've got to push through. But it turns out, um, I couldn't really move. So yeah, I ended up in the hospital alone. Um, my family had been over for a three month visit, but they'd all gone home about six weeks earlier. Um, so yeah. At 21 years of age, I was in a hospital in Switzerland in a shared room with three other people and with a broken back. So that was a fun call. I think my poor brother-in-law picked up the phone at 2am in the morning to me saying, oh, hey, Rob, (laughs) sorry to wake you, mum and dad there. Uh, Before I tell you what's happened, I am okay, I am okay, but, you know, I've broken my back. So so that was the end of that travel Um, and I came back to Australia and I was a little bit stumped because... Um, I'd found love, which, spoiler alert, wasn't with Andy actually. It was with someone else. Oh, I, I was about 10 at the time, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Easy, tiger. Uh, so, yeah, at least 14. Um, so, I, yeah, I'd come home and decided I was going to stay home. I got engaged actually and um, decided I need to start earning some money. So it was a decision of either getting into teaching and going and studying at school to be a teacher, which is what I thought I wanted to do, um, or 
I loved people and I loved traveling. So I thought, oh, a travel agent is a great mix. So as a 21 year old, I went and applied for a job at Flight Center and got the job second time lucky, actually. Um, a bit like my marriages, my jobs. Yeah, so there's a bit of a pattern there. Uh, but um, yeah, got the job and was there for 17 years. 17 years I worked at Flight Center, which is just an amazing time. I spoke to someone earlier today who was an ex-flighty and I was just saying if it if it wasn't for COVID, um, you know, I, I couldn't see myself ever leaving there and I had incredible friendships, leaders, experiences, got to travel the world, got to party, meet famous people, um, just meet you, meet some of my closest friends. So yeah, an incredible 17 years that could be 17 podcasts on its own, really. Uh, but, yeah, so thanks to my broken back brought me home, which led me to Flight Centre, which I guess led me to here now. It did. And before it led you to here, it led you to a few other places as well. Oh, yeah, it probably um, did. <laughs> 17 years of things. 17 years of things. So um, love if we could, we could go there now. So we had the better part of... Was it a 12-month period or so on the northern beaches, maybe a little bit longer for yeah, two um, years. selling travel? And I remember yeah. you've told a story before, which I, which I love hearing about um, the first time that the area manager of the northern beaches kind of walked into walked into a flight yeah. centre store, Linda. Yeah, it's um, funny, isn't it? Like, And I think it's a, it's a reminder for all leaders to know that people are always watching and um, not to be inauthentic but just you never know who you're actually inspiring or what your actions and your way of being, how that's impacting people because not everyone tells you. Um, So, yeah, Linda McAdam, I remember her um, coming into our store. Again, I was 21. I'd been in the company a couple months. I had this most amazing team leader, Brandy O'Brien. She... um, I don't think I would have been there and had that success without the two of them, in particular Brandy at the time, but uh, Linda really inspired me and I thought, oh, I'd like to do that job one day. And in honesty, I think it's because all I saw her doing (laughs) was coming in and taking everyone out for coffee and just chatting to them and encouraging them and telling them what was possible. And I'm like, I could do that. I could talk to people and be their cheerleader. Uh, Turns out there's a lot more to that role, a lot more to that role, but that was an early goal that I sat down and went, yeah, this is where I want to go. And I was so young um, in the company and, uh, you know, in age, obviously new in the company, but I was very young and at the time not a lot of, you know, 21, 22-year-olds. It it really wasn't common then. Um, So I guess they called me Little Shez actually. That was my nickname. So Little Shez had these ambitions from day one and, yeah, um, it took me up to Queensland. I think my husband at the time was from Queensland, so we decided to take a stint up on the sunny coast um, and that was amazing. I mean, I, I kind of look back now, we're in 2023 and I moved up in 2005, so most of my adult, like pretty much all of my adult life has been up here as a maroon, so it's a bit confusing this state of origin time for me. I remember one of the first things I, I really noticed about you and really uh, felt kind of being around you was just how energetic you were, how warm you were, how how um, how much fun you were to talk to. Like every conversation sort of just brought up a huge amount of energy and a huge amount of life that you were breathing in. I've heard someone recently describe you as as being the light in the room, oh, um, and you. and that is absolutely my. My first memory of, of meeting you at that Irish pub on huh. a state of origin night. So, um, and and I think from there, you know, you fast forward three years later and, and eventually we got together and it was late in 2010 when you hit 
a bit of a rock bottom point. You had got divorced. You tore your Achilles. It's so true. So up until that point in my life, I would say, you know, that was absolutely my rock bottom or my hardest experience uh, to date. I was very fortunate. I had such a blessed upbringing and incredible home life and community that we were a part of, lots of families that we would spend time with. Like everything was, you know, there's challenges of being a teenager, but things were pretty smooth and that time then really um, rocked me. So I think even the broken back was like, oh, it's a bit inconvenient, but I'd kind of fallen in love. So I was very easily distracted from that Um, and then started a new job and things just going well. So it was playing the whistle, I guess, going, right, this is okay, this is okay. Uh, But when that happened, the the Achilles in particular, I think the the divorce had been some time coming and um, was sad and really hard and, and frightening. Um, and if I really, really think about it and we're talking about lead with courage, I think it was about living with courage in that stage for me. Uh, so this was before the Achilles, uh, the decision to leave a marriage. And, um, I had a lot, I'd say it was a long time coming because there was a lot of internal dialogue, a lot of conversations around that thought that I'm a failure, like I've failed this marriage. And and people would say that to me, like, oh, yeah, well, you know, with a failed marriage. And it really triggered me because I think I made it mean things about I'm a failure rather than this relationship is just no longer serving us. Um, And I see that now, but at the time I had a lot of deep, deep hurt and probably a lack of self-worth um, and a lot of not a lot of love for myself so that was that was a really hard time so leaving the marriage was one thing but the finding myself I know that sounds so cliche but then being alone after that that was really confronting I remember there was this book and what's funny is as I'm speaking to you now it's, it's just over your shoulder on our bookcase in the office um, there was this book that I bought and I put it on my bedside table and it was just seeing those words every single day. And the book's called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. And that for me, it's, it's quite ironic because I've actually never even read the book. <laughs> but just seeing that those words every single day, just allowing those to um, digest into my subconscious, you know, this is scary and I'm going to do it anyway. And what it came down to, I think, was asking myself, do I deserve to be happy? Do I want to be happy? Am I happy? And the answer was, I'm not happy. I'm not as happy as I believe I could be. And I need to do something about that. And it was scary and it took a lot of courage and it was the hardest slash one of the best decisions um, I've made for myself, um, as difficult as it was. I lost a lot of friends. I think one thing I never anticipated was then you kind of divorced your whole life, um, which was hard because I had a lot of friends up on the sunny coast. I'd moved up with my ex for that. And so when we moved there, all of the networks and the community that we were a part of together was together. So then when we split, um, I found myself back in Brisbane and, and yeah, just trying to stay uh, active and trying to stay c- connected to friends. And so I started playing indoor netball. And then one night my Achilles snapped playing indoor netball, which was just wild um, and a complete tear. And, you know, you ask so many athletes what's one of the worst injuries you can have and that was mine. So I ended up in a wheelchair. Um, I lived at the time 
in New Farm and I was in an ap- apartment that had like, I was on the second story and there was no lift and there I am in a wheelchair. I'm probably six or seven months into my separation. I had no money because we were selling the house and we renovated only months before so we hadn't kind of recouped the money back in the house. So I walked away with a bit of a debt. And I think a, as, a as well from, from what I've... From what I've heard and what I've seen that, you know, getting getting divorced and like having that, you know, level of life change and that level of trauma as well, like there's so much of, you know, you're not looking really for the best fiscally responsible avenue to move out. You, you no. just like that's the end, end of it. one chapter. Yeah, that's the end of one chapter. That's the end of it. Cut those ties. Cut those ties and then, you know, you move on. Yeah, and that's what it was. I think I just want to move on and it sounds really uh, cold and harsh potentially but it was. It's like I need to move forward. When I tore my Achilles, I remember my mum flew up to Brisbane to come and get me so that then someone could help me pack a bag and get some bits and pieces and I went back down to Sydney to my mum and dad's house. And I remember it's just so bizarre how things happen, right? Um, I remember being in the front row of the flight actually uh, because I needed space for my leg and my big moon boot and the people on the other side of the front row were Screw Turner and Jude Turner, like literally on this flight, the the founder of Flight Centre and his wonderful wife and it's just like how strange that those events, I'd been playing netball with his son and they're like, oh, we heard about what happened to you two weeks ago. Um, so at that time I'm sitting there at my mum and dad's house or lying in bed my phone actually died on the flight down so it never started working again. And for me that was quite significant because it was fundamentally like ties were cut from my job and I was in that area leader role by then working with you and like a hundred and odd staff. It was a big job and so I just felt like all that significance and everyone needed me, you know, well at least that's what my ego was telling me at the time. Whilst I wasn't needed in my own home and that marriage was over, didn't feel loved or needed there, but I did feel needed at work. So then when that was cut, that was confronting and that's what was so hard. Yes, physically I was going through recovery from my Achilles operation, but really it was the emotional toll of who am I? Like when the phone's not ringing and people needing me to solve problems, like no one's ringing. Where are my friends? Who do I call? That's how it felt. It felt very empty, very dark. And I think in that moment where I just had to start asking my question, myself those questions to answer, um, well, who do I want to be? Where do I want to live? What do I want to do? Yeah, it was it was a tough experience. So from those deep, dark moments of your life, how did mm. you pull yourself out? I don't know what the catalyst for this was exactly or how it started, but I started investing in myself actually. And I'd say specifically there was two courses that I went to. Um, one was Landmark, the Landmark Forum. It's maybe not as well known as the second one I went to, um, but Landmark really just goes in and talks about your mindset and the rackets that you have and the stories you um, tell yourself and the meanings that you add to things. So it was very powerful. It was one of those ones that then you make phone calls and kind of reconcile different challenges and things with people from your past. So um, that was quite transformational for me. I then also went um, to the second backup, so Landmark Forum and then number two as well. So it was pretty powerful really um, understanding how I can unlearn and the meanings I'm adding to things are everything. Uh, And then the next one I went to, which you also remember because by 
pure chance or as life was going to have it for us, um, you also went to this conference. I remember speaking to Andy. We'd been speaking on the phone a bit. He was in Brisbane. I was in Sydney. And you said, oh, I'm coming to Tony Robbins in Sydney. And I'm like, oh, me too. And, and by absolute coincidence, we both had tickets. Like, oh, have you got anywhere to stay? And um, you did all but one night. And that one night you, you stayed over at my place and we've been together ever since. We have, yeah, there was, yes, we have. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave that there. Um, so could you say then there was three things of um, in investment into myself. There was a new a new man, um, the Landmark Forum and Tony Robbins. Tony Robbins was a game changer, you know, doing that coal walk, the hot fire walk, um, learning about the six core human needs, just the power of our mind and, and the words we use. Yeah, incredibly, incredibly impactful time. So... Both of those were game changers and then, um, you know, on a new path with a new a new bloke. And then from there you found yourself back up in Brisbane not not long later. There was um, a push and pull between career and, of course, I was there. So, you know, <laughs> naturally you'd naturally. gravitate your way up to, up to Brisbane. Um, and it w- wasn't long after that that you, I guess, first discovered uh, leadership training and, and development workshops. Yes, you're right. And, you know, unofficially... In the area leader role I'd been in at Flight Centre, we did a lot of training, whether it's, um, you know, new recruits and helping them learn skills or speaking at the events like the the buzz night we had every month and you'd be up on the microphone talking and trying to inspire people. So there's a bit of that in the role, but officially doing leadership training, yes, you're right. So I I moved into that space, um, training managers and leaders at Flight Centre and in that time, I guess, leading up to getting married and having a baby in that time, um, I did that for a couple of years and then bounced back to area leading again um, and then f- went on a three-month honeymoon with you, travelled the world, had the time of our life and decided it might be time to think about having a baby. And, yeah, so then that next journey. So I was leadership, area leading and then pregnancy. Pregnancy, yes, and we um, decided to have a baby. Yeah, we got got pregnant on our honeymoon, mm. and um, unfortunately, we we had a miscarriage. Um, mm. Still, you know, for a lot of people out there who have it, it, it's you know not spoken about quite quite regularly. I think we found through no. our own journey, but no, not a lot. you know, and um, a, a significant moment for us, and took us a little while to get pregnant again after that. Eventually, we did, yeah. and um, that pregnancy uh, did last. Just long enough, Just. Um, 25 weeks and um, two days. I remember being in Victoria, yeah. being in Melbourne, just squeezing in one last golf trip <laughs> before the baby would come along and um, I remember getting a call quite early in the morning that um, you were having having some cramps um, and, and just, you know, general pain and then they just happened to be maybe 10 minutes apart and... You know, you're basically you're going into labour. Um, yeah. I think from unbeknownst there, to me. unbeknownst to you, from there you you know maybe took some painkillers and drove <laughs> yourself to the local hospital. I know, and go back to my broken back thing of like when I'm in a lot of pain, I'm like, oh no, no, I'm just overreacting. It's nothing bad. Um, I was in quite a lot of pain, and I called the hospital, and they said, this is the second time you've called us in twelve hours. Could you please come in so we can check you out? Yeah, so I drove myself at two o'clock in the morning. Um, just thinking, oh, this would be nothing. I'll be back in an hour. And, yeah, lo and behold, as you said, I was in labour, which um, 
labour at 25 weeks, I didn't know a lot about that. In fact, I knew nothing about that. And that in itself is... I don't think either of us did. <laughs> didn't know what a neonatal intensive care unit was, didn't know that there were dedicated trained doctors who specialised in, you know, extremely premature babies. Yeah. No, I, I had no idea. And ironically, my sister did ask me, Mel, she said, when we booked in the hospital initially, she's like, oh, does that hospital have a NICU? And I'm like... What's a NICU? No. Yeah, they take care of people. I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm fine. It'll be fine. Um, yeah, As so it was, you didn't last in that hospital either. They transferred no, you over to... No, because they had no NICU. Yeah, <laughs> transferred you over to the martyr to... Um, oh, the martyr, the best. Yeah, beautiful um, martyr. The other hospital was also great. Uh, but yeah, so I was in an ambulance on my own, um, four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning, heading over to the martyr. And that is where um, I stayed on the birth suite for three days, two and a half days. Interesting, you know, like we were given um, – I was calling Andy, so he was on his way, but obviously you're coming from um, Melbourne traffic, so you're on – I think we were on the Mornington Peninsula or oh, it was somewhere a, miles yeah, away. Yeah, a Monday morning um, peak hour traffic <laughs> took, yeah, three hours to go 100 k's and then plus a flight. And I remember talking to the – you know, it's that moment that you see in a movie, you talk to the airline staff and you're on the cheapest, nastiest ticket, or I was at least, yes. possible and – and I'm like, I've just had a call. My wife's actually going into labour. Is there any way I could get on an earlier fight? And it's like, oh, of course, of course, no worries. There's one in 45 minutes. Can you make it through? And then, and, and then, old mate, one of your buddies is like, oh, not going to be having. Oh uh, yeah, today. But a beautiful, beautiful friend of mine. Oh, um, you know, like where I was, where I was sitting there, you know, having a bit of a panic um, in that three-hour drive, driving back, and we may or may not have been a little hungover as well. So, you know, in that drive, driving back, he's like, right, time to have a chat about this. Then. She's not going into labour today. Babies just don't come that early. You've got nothing to worry about. I'm sure it's fine. I wish he was right. Yeah, I wish he was right too. Uh, he doesn't live that speech down and there were two other witnesses to hear that one as well. So, oh, that's so funny. Uh, that, that was a good one. Thanks for that. Uh, yeah, so good. So, unfortunately, he was incorrect and, um, well, technically correct because the, uh, Chloe didn't come for another couple of days. So, yeah, again, there's probably a lot to that story but fundamentally um, – you know, in that time we got a very quick and harsh education um, around what to expect with a baby arriving and it's probably one of those times, you know, we talk about personal values where one of my personal values is is optimism, um, probably where my optimism came in really handy there because we were given, you know, paperwork that was given uh, statistics around, you know, the gestation, so she's going to be 25 weeks-ish, um, the gender, we knew she was a female, um, and also the weight, which we wouldn't know until she arrived. Um, all of that put together, those percentages around what the chance of survival would be. It's like a 50-50 shot, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. which when you're sitting there in labour on the birth suite and you're reading that, it's it's pretty confronting. Um, and then on just in case that wasn't enough, on the other side of the page um, gives you the percentage chances of mild, moderate and severe disabilities that you can expect. Yeah, and a 25% chance of a severe disability yeah. and, and a pretty high likelihood of having a mild or a moderate. Yeah, yeah, which would be, you know, life-altering disabilities. And so fortunately, for whatever reason... Um, I had enough time before my waters burst and I actually um, gave birth that they could pump me with some pretty severe drugs. So I was getting the nepethamine or whatever it's called, like some steroids for Chloe's little lungs. Um, and possibly the, the most important one is like I had a 24 hours of this magnesium drip, I'm sure. That's how long it went. That's how, 
at least how long it felt like it went for. But um, my whole body was shaking, was it? Like it was just an insane drug to put into me. Um, that as the adult, I could feel the impact. So I can't imagine how this 730 gram baby um, was impacted by it. And thank goodness we had it because that helped with brain it bleeds. Off. Yeah. I think it, it both saved her life and also gave her lifestyle, you know, or her quality of life because that's the brain bleeds which then leads on to some severe uh, disabilities. And, of course, you know, you deal with whatever as you play the whistle, you deal with whatever you get, um, but it, nobody nobody wants that for their child. So, yeah, we were very lucky that I got that. Um, I remember a couple of hours later we were sitting up in the ward mm. and we, were, we had a, a fairly big conversation, one of the bigger ones we've had, if not the biggest, um, and that that one in particular was around how are we going to live this out? You know, in the mm. in the public eye. I mean, we're not famous per se, um, <laughs> albeit you this? did boast that you had a couple of thousand Facebook followers at the time. So <laughs> maybe there was you know oh, a little bit of an famous, audience there. But yeah. it, it was very much like, okay, are, are we gonna are we gonna post things? I guess, and are we gonna share our journey mm. publicly, not knowing what the outcome is going to be, and not knowing, you know, I guess where it takes us, or are we gonna you know, go through it privately. And and I remember it was a very real conversation for us to have because we just had to acknowledge that some days are going to be pretty, pretty ordinary. Like the average, mm. she was, a, Chloe was 101 days early mm. and, um, you know, the average time that 101 day early babies in hospital or 25 weeker is, is around 140 days yeah. thereabouts. So are we going to live this out for, for better or worse um, in that time? And, and we decided to do it. I guess we decided to, to do a fairly to share the yeah. journey fairly publicly. Maybe it could give someone hope later on down the track. And yeah, and, yeah. and again, I guess you go well, taking courage to do that because when we'd had the miscarriage, I think that was a big reason that we even talked about this because when we had the miscarriage, I remember we told people we were pregnant. Then we had to untell people, and that was really challenging and really hard. It and was I hard. think it was that whole thing of going, well, do we tell people we've had a baby? Um, what if she doesn't make it? This is, there's a real, you know, chance that this isn't going to be a beautiful story. Um, and then the decision was, well, we'd rather be open and honest about it because if we're in grief and um, traumatised by this experience, we'd rather people support around it rather than quietly suffer and not share it, have any shame attached. And, you know, there, there was no shame to be had. It was just no, what there it was. Wasn't. It was quite cathartic too. Like I remember we kept a journal Yes, and and we would day. write in it every day. We would celebrate whatever wins we could find during the day, and sometimes they were pretty few and far between, or sometimes yeah. there were there were none at all. You just call it for what it was. It's a pretty ordinary day, and other days there were two steps forward, one step back, and other days there were three steps forward. Yeah. So and we, forcing ourselves to find the win, I think, was yeah. a powerful thing. And I think you know when I look at optimism again as one of my things, one of my core values personally, and also like built into that is gratitude like to be able to see the good in things um and to acknowledge them i think that that was a big game changer i feel for us because uh it didn't it wasn't toxic positivity like it wasn't about going oh this is fun you know but it was like well, how do we find something positive from each day even on some really really dark days either for us or some of the other families that were in our shared room, we'd be we're in there with seven other babies, seven other families plus us. So you know, we saw we saw some families leave without their child that didn't make it, and like that's it's so intimate because you're in this room with them, you're sharing the same energy, the same 
the same breath of air as these people and yeah that was it was pretty pretty uh traumatic really it was a really tough time yeah i've never seen life and death in the you know play out in life in the same way that it did in a niku ward mm. i think where it's it's quite an extreme experience yeah yeah it was and so from there we get Chloe home. Yes. Um, at 81 days, which is a bit of a miracle in itself um, yes. to get her home so early and, and, you know, relatively functioning as well. Like mm. She was on oxygen um, for, uh, you know, ended up being about 12 months in the end um, just to supplement her being able to breathe. So. Mm. Yeah, yes. Yeah, she did. And, um, and it was a funny experience. I didn't really know how to uh, put language to it in the original sense but now I absolutely do which is as a mum for me it was like being in a COVID lockdown and I didn't know what that was um, back in 2017 but now I can compare that and maybe people can relate because she because Chloe had her oxygen tank on and a little like oxygen nasal um, tubes in constantly it was because she had neonatal lung disease, which meant she had com- uh, compromised lungs. So if she got even the slightest cold, that would realistically turn into pneumonia and that could that could end her life. So um, without sounding dramatic, that was kind of what was at risk if anyone was sick, if she, she was just so immune compromised at the time. So I really didn't go anywhere. I didn't do a lot of things. And I had a lot of friends on maternity leave at the time. So I'd had this grand vision uh, when I'd fallen pregnant of all these, you know, rhyme times and modern mamas and all this fun stuff we could have done, all the cute baby stuff. And, yeah, in a way I was grieving that loss because I didn't have that experience. I had a lot of fear of what could go wrong. And I actually don't typically live like that. I, I'm not a warrior um, with a W-O-R-R. I'd say you are a warrior. <laughs> Maybe warrior with an A. Definitely a warrior. Uh, but not, you know, I'm not someone who really lives in worry a lot. Um, I'm not saying I don't, I'm not concerned by things, but I just don't ruminate in that space. And and I found myself there. Like I found myself getting scared about everything, being paranoid about everything. The fear was real like yeah. to the point where... Remember when I went to work every day, I would come home before I even touched anyone. I would have a shower. Yes, you know, and we, get had, we had we had hand sanitizer at every entry and exit. People a, didn't even know what sanitizer was back then. <laughs> yeah, we would. I remember we would ask people to, you know, when they when they came over and they wanted to see her, like there would be the normal stuff, like um, you know, no around, smoke or yeah, yeah, whooping cough vaccinations or whatever. Some of my beautiful friends had, you know, even went and got them. And that, oh yeah, immensely grateful. I think you know couldn't do it without the support of so many incredible people um it felt very lonely for me i think being such an extrovert and someone who is just so high on connection which is another one of my core values you know i just want to be connected and have meaningful relationships and be part of something and um to be stuck at home and um and there was i don't really want to get into this right now too deeply but there was a restructure um in my my work so there was a lot of uncertainty for me around what was next in my career and so from a um who am i at my own um sense of self and and where am i in my career was on pause from having a baby and being a new mum it was also on pause because of you know structural things so that added so much stress and uncertainty to the year um which for me i guess that was a time 
it takes me back to the the Achilles, you know, who am I? How do I want to show up in this world? What's important to me? And how will I contribute back? Because I think sometimes what I realised um, when I go through tougher experiences in life is that if I focus inward on poor me, what about me, this is tough, blah, 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 or kind of the, that victim or the negative, oh, I guess it's in some way warranted, you know, it's valid thoughts. But if I stay there too long... I can't. I, I struggle to get out of that cycle. So what I've found is that I get out of it by thinking about how can I contribute to someone else. Um, and so I guess technically an, an example in 2017 for me was um, I started uh, a Premier Parents Connection group. It was via Facebook but we'd also catch up face-to-face and have parents and the babies come back together because it was quite a lonely journey and such a unique little special club to be a premier parent. Um, so yeah that started and it, it's still going today. Um, and I remember when I did eventually go back to work at the end of 2017 I went back into a leadership development role which I absolutely loved and one of my first things that I did even before coming back technically um, I co-founded a like a parent support group in flight center we called parent wise so it was um, you know days back every month we'd bring people on uh, parental leave back to the business and we put on coffee and cake and stuff for them and their colleagues would come and see their babies and meet them and um, we had it's really aimed at helping helping um, women and men for that matter yeah, kind of transition connect. back to the workplace and, yeah. and connect. Yeah, transition not felt forgotten when they're on parental leave, which so often happens across all industries and yeah. companies. Um, so it was about keeping in touch days. And then it was also then when people came back, we had like little education um, sessions on different things and we had dad's beers. I remember like once a month you'd go up to the top, um, the flight centre, they have this amazing restaurant rooftop bar that overlooks South Bank and the city in Brisbane and you'd have the catch up with the dad. So they were the things for me. I joined the Flight Centre Foundation, so the charity arm, it was all voluntary work. Um, so doing those things when I'm not in my best, I've, I've really learned that when I start focusing externally and giving back, that's when I start picking back up myself. Yeah, it fills up your cup. Mm, it really does. I think it's that contribution in the six core needs that I learned back at Tony, uh, but also that connection um, in one of my values and another value of mine is kindness. So I think just acts of kindness where you can. And you stayed in that role until early 2020 when the, the world... leadership uh, training, yeah, yeah I did. and the world changed forever. Um, <laughs> I remember know. there was a, a certain specific day in March, can't remember which one, maybe around the 20th or so, mm, where you there. and I both got calls on the same day to say that we had been stood down indefinitely, um, <laughs> you know, pending... Yeah, pending whatever was going to happen with COVID. And I remember optimistically we were kind of looking out the window thinking, I'll probably just go back to normal in a couple of months. We'll, won't be back in May or June, won't we'll get we? called back in May or, or June. And, and, you know, you were you were in a role where you were training um, the support team members. You were training the accountants. You were training the product mm. leaders. You were training the... The, the marketing, su- the finance, the tech people, all of the people and culture people. Yeah, so everything behind the scenes. Yes, and training all of those. And, and, you know, COVID happens and then unfortunately the company had to let go of 90% of its staff. And so people, including us, were, were scattered around, um, mm. uh, I guess, other businesses and organisations. And then it wasn't long after that that Illuminate Leadership was born. 
Yeah, that's it. Like it was crazy to think the same day we both got told there's our fate for now and then wondering what would happen. And um, at the end of the year, it was really clear, like you, you were made redundant officially in October. I was officially made redundant in November. So we kind of saw it coming. We knew it was coming. We had some good contact and understanding it was on its way. And when it officially happened... Um, that, yeah. That's a good point that you made actually just before like on the day that we were made... Um, the, on the day that we were stood down, yeah. I remember um, it, it wasn't long after that we had the phone call, that you had the phone call in particular, that um, there was a, a pop-up call centre happening um, <laughs> at, at, at the head office in, in Brisbane in Grey Street in, in South Bank um, and a, a temporary COVID MyGov call centre pop-up and, and there was an opportunity for, for you to go in there with, with quite a senior role. And I remember you, one of the things I really loved about watching you that day and I think it spoke to the resilience of the other things that we've spoken about today that have that have kind of built that foundation for you that the bounce back ability mm. I guess the trampoline effect of kind of being knocked down and having a look in the bank and being like okay well there's not a huge runway there to be able to you know flesh out life and there was certainly no government support then in the way of JobKeeper or anything like that there was no tap into your super to get through yeah. there was you know, what there was was, okay, well, how do we find a solution attached to this or how do we just ride through this or play the whistle, mm, if you will. And the whistle, the whistle in that moment was, you know, an opportunity to go and work in a pop-up call centre in the same place that, um, you know... The, the, in the flight centre building. In the flight centre yeah. building, so where they were leasing out a few floors. That's so true. I literally... We got the stand-down on the Friday. On Saturday I got the call about this call center and on monday i started and it was a seven month contract so the end of march took us up to the end of october and i was made redundant in november and yourself in october um it's funny you know because i do reflect on that stand down time and the reality that we weren't coming back i mean a leadership development role training the back-end support staff of a travel company when the travel company is fighting to survive and not fold after 40 odd years um, during COVID, like the role I was in clearly was not a make or break role. So I knew we weren't going back and it wasn't personal. It was nothing other than just circumstance, but it was play the whistle. And I think I'd learned in that time on maternity leave about not putting my whole identity in the job that I did. It's important to love what you do and it's important to show up and give your absolute best. And also your job is not who you are. And I learned that in 2017. So when this occurred in 2020, um, I feel like I'd had a bit of a test run on that. So I'm, I'm not saying I walked around high-fiving saying it was great, uh, but they, I the it's just a game perspective um, came in for me there where you go, yeah, look, this is a little bit shit. Like no one's happy about it. I loved what I was doing. What's the future going to look like for me? And we can we can create it. You'd remember this. I was applying for jobs left, right and centre. I think I applied for 33 jobs that were in my field. Um, none of them really stuck and I was just constantly like waiting for someone else to take a chance for me, someone take a chance, someone take a chance. And then a couple of my friends and then yourself and I spoke and went, why don't you just take a chance on yourself? Like why don't you start a business? And if you're so clear on what it is you want to do, which I was, to do leadership development, to run workshops, to train people, to to really make an impact, a positive impact on people's lives, I know exactly what I want to do. I just couldn't find anywhere to do it. 
So then we created it, um, which I'm super proud of. And it sounds crazy to say that you started a business in 2020 and it was an in-person training company <laughs> primarily. Like what a nutcase. Yeah, any minute down there'll be a lockdown that, that oh, you know, stops the business in its tracks for six oh, months. Just play the whistle. Yeah. Play the whistle. So, yeah, here we are. And what's bizarre or funny or serendipitous, whatever you want to call it, um, was that when all of these thousands of beautiful people were also stood down and made redundant that in years gone by I had trained, I had worked with, I had built relationships with, um, then they were popping up in new companies. And I was I was so lucky. I put out on social media that I was starting a business and um, people started calling and connecting saying, oh, oh, you're doing that kind of training similar to Flight Centre? Well, we'd like that in my company. Oh, can you come and train the new place I'm working at? Oh, we need that. And so it begins, you know, and it's just a snowball impact and and here we are now. I think it's been amazing. It, it's so many tests. I think it puts forces you to put the mirror up to how you lead and how you can – well, it's forced me to put the mirror up to myself, how I lead, how I communicate, um, how I get all these ideas and different things in my head and how – um, people can't just read my mind. That that sometimes is a bit frustrating. No, I'm only joking. But, you know, it's, um, yeah, just so important to apply the learnings of what we go and share in our own um, in our own business, which is which has been great. So, yeah, here and we I, are. I remember one of the first things we did in the business was go through and, and create the values of the business. Sure was, yeah. One, one of the values, you know, is lead with courage. Yeah. Uh, such as the podcast is named after or the title yes. of the podcast. And our Ignite conference this year, the theme is Lead with Courage. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's um, kind of real essence there. Um, two questions before we finish up today. Yeah. What the, what the other two values are? Are they your two questions? Because they're customer obsessed and always curious, but maybe that wasn't your question. No, what are your questions? no it wasn't, but you, thank you for throwing those in You're there. welcome. Um, how do you develop yourself? Uh, how do I develop myself? different ways all the time. Um, I love to read, so physical books or audio books. Um, I love to read people's biographies. I, I like business books and different things. I love biographies, understanding people's lives. Um, I, uh, I have a personal coach that I see regularly or I speak to regularly as well as some unofficial mentors that I, I seek seek out. And I think as um, Adam Grant said at a recent conference I went to, you know, you've got to find your challenge tribe. So those people in your life that are there to give and they're there for you, but they'll also challenge you and, and tell you the hard truths when you need them. So I've got my challenge tribe that do that job. Um, I also am on, uh, currently I'm part of um, a mastermind program, six month program for female founders, which is fantastic. I'm always looking for something. I've just come back from ATD, the world's largest learning conference, 9,000 people in person in San Diego um, just last week. So yeah, I'm constantly, you know, go to events, meeting people, connecting with people, um, on social media and having coffee catch-ups and this podcast even I think you know it's around that listening to people and I feel like we get to develop ourselves in hearing incredible inspiring people's bold stories of their lives um, so yeah that's that's me podcasts um, meditation journaling so I work on my own mindset a lot as well as learning new things or unlearning yeah lovely love that thank you thank you What's the kindest thing someone has done for you? Well, you asked me to marry you. I guess that was pretty kind. <laughs> Is that what you're going for? I didn't no. feel like I had a choice. <laughs> oh, you're a 
quick learner. Um, no, so what's kindness? I think, oh, there's a million. Um, I have thought about this question because I knew that it was in our other podcasts and possibly one of them that comes to mind was when we had Chloe on day two of her life when we had then decided to tell people what was happening and a beautiful lady called Jackie Hall from Corporate Traveller at Flight Centre she was on the Flight Centre Foundation and she, the charitable arm, and she had heard and basically the foundation members said, well, what can we do to support? Because they always were like, how can we support our own? How can we support our own? Um, and there's not a lot you can do when people are in NICU. Like, there's nothing really. Um, minimal, I should say. And they decided, they realised that parking, you know, like you said earlier, Andy, like 101 days early. So... Parking at the MARTA is about $35 a day. At least it was back then. Um, so with inflation, it's probably $75 now. But it's $35 a day and we were looking down, you know, the lens of at least 100 days at least. So it's a fair chunk of money. And I think you and I have talked about, you know, we she came early. So we hadn't even planned to finish work yet or financially be... Yeah, yeah not to mention the fact that, yeah, your, your baby comes 15 weeks early or, you know, even 11 weeks before most... You know, a lot of ladies would begin to take maternity leave, for yeah. example. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, there's there's the no financial impact. Yeah, there's no leave for that. There's there's nothing. So it's sort of like, oh, okay, we'll caught caught a little short, to say the least. And yeah, yeah. And so Jackie's idea was, well, why don't we offer them? They arranged us a car park for free in the flight center building, so it just allowed us every single day at twenty four hours a day access to free parking. And you know, for those who aren't from Brisbane or don't know those locations, the Marta Mothers Hospital was about a 10-minute walk from um, Flight Centre HQ at Southbank. So it was ideal. And and for me in particular, um, just being able to walk in and out of that building, I saw so many familiar faces and so many people, which just gave me a real boost and just to feel not so isolated and, and feel really connected to people who were always like, oh, how's Chloe? How are you going? Even people I didn't know that well, they'd always be asking. People seemed to find, like know that that was happening. So... Um, yeah, call out to Jackie if she's listening to this or if someone knows her, let her know. But that was pro- possibly one of the kindest things. Yeah, it sure was. Thank mm. you, Jackie. Mm. Well, Cherie, thank you for being the first guest on Ooh. the Lead With Courage podcast. Thank you, Andy Kenny. We did it. We did it. Nailed it. Well, I don't know about nailing it actually, but we did it. <laughs> it's oh, done. We'll, we'll have a look at the stats <laughs> down the track and that'll Not tell so us. Not so nailed it. We're leading with courage. We're going to you know, stuff it up and keep moving forward anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I, I want to say thanks to anyone and, and any, everyone who is listening and thanks for giving us a, um, a chance and we hope that you really enjoy the guests that we have on because we thought we kind of need to kick off explaining at least who I am and we'll have one back telling you a bit more about Andy Canning as well uh, but who Luminate is and how this came to be. So um, the focus is on these amazing guests that we're going to have along so we really hope you enjoy it and find as much inspiration from them as, as we will. Thanks for joining us on the Lead with Courage podcast. We illuminate leadership and it's our mission to inspire and grow the leaders of today to create a better tomorrow. We hope and trust that this episode has given you some insights and joy to empower you to live your biggest, best life. If you did enjoy the episode, we'd be so grateful for you to rate and share wherever you listen to this podcast. And until next time, go and lead with courage. 
Luminate Leadership is not a licensed mental health service or a substitute for professional mental health advice, treatment or assessment. Any conversation in this podcast is general in nature and if you're struggling, please see a healthcare professional or call Lifeline on 131114.